Welcome back. Welcome back. That is good old Chase. It's definitely not Hannah. It's definitely not. Uh, Hannah's husband, David, had uh, got the Rona again. Mm. And so we're just doing a little quarantining, a little social distancing. And uh, Chase is here to help us out. And, yep. I, and I thought, you know, maybe this week, instead of talking about a fairy tale, because Chase is not about that life, we would just talk about some spooky stuff. You know, we do spooky spots. And today, I just wanted to talk about some spooky stuff. Or Does that sound... I'm here for it. Okay. Well, in the London Bridges episode, we talked about immurement, being buried inside of walls as a form of mm-hmm. sacrifice or punishment. And on that episode, we said we would kind of circle back to the topic of being buried alive. So that's what we're talking about today. The fear of being buried alive, the occurrences in history of being buried alive. Ryan there, Reynolds, yeah. Oh, maybe. right. What's it called? Buried. Buried. And the entire movie is shot in a coffin. And the entire movie, I thought, yep. At the end, he's going to... There's going to be a different scene. There's going to be a different setup. Nope. Spoiler alert. He Enti- did. Entire movie in a coffin. Mm-hmm. So maybe watch that and then come back and listen to this or vice versa and have yourself a great time. But taphophobia is the fear of being buried alive. The word taphophobia originates from the Greek word taphos, which means tombs or graves, and phobos, which stands for deep dread or fear. Do you have this fear? It's never crossed my mind. Do you want to be buried or cremated? I'm good with either one. I'm not going to be here, so. I feel like I don't think about it, but when I'm at like a funeral, when they're putting the person in the ground, it always kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies. Mm-hmm. I've been to both as far as funerals go. I think it goes hand-in-hand with, like, claustrophobia, which I don't have, like, a legit claustrophobia, but I feel like I I can see why that would be bothersome. Yeah, then again... I just know I'm going to be here, so it's not going to matter. So. Right. But then again... Take my organs, <laughs> make, make good use of them. Yep. Burn me, bury me. Oh, okay, wow. Whatever you he want. He is here for it. Yep. So for centuries, there have been stories about people who met this terrifying fate, because it is terrifying if you were actually buried alive. <laughs> I came up with this little joke. <laughs> and Hold on. Girl- I was going to say the, the only thing I can think of is Dwight in the office, where he's like, there, were, there was a period of time when the Shroots uh, had some deep sleepers. Yeah, and so now they <laughs> shoot him in the head. Um, so there, there have been accounts, enough for this to be an actual worry, and grave mistakes have indeed happened. Get it? Grave mistakes. According to Christine Quigley in her book, The Corpse, A History, quote, in the early 1900s, a case of premature burial was discovered an average of once a week. <laughs> Other estimates put the yearly number of premature burials at around 2,700 in England around this time. That is a lot of mistakes so scientists have done their math and they have configured that the average person can survive between 1 and 18 hours in a modern coffin just depending on body size health that kind of thing so so you i wonder how long ryan reynolds was in that coffin just a couple hours oh but the sand that filled the coffin that probably did him in 
I can't remember. It's yeah. been a while. So it's not just you and I that fear, have this fear. It, there's several famous people who in the past have went to great lengths to avoid being buried alive. You got Hans Christian Andersen. You ever heard of him? Yep. He wanted his veins cut open upon his death, so he would bleed out to make sure that he was indeed dead. Uh, George Washington, our first president, Alfred Noble, as well as uh, Frederick Chopin. You know, we saw his grave in France. So oh, yeah. that, So that's interesting. And he demanded that his heart be cut out once he was dead to ensure that he stayed that way. So it's not just the peasants and the common people of the time. Very famous, wealthy most likely well-educated people also feared this. Which probably just speaks to the state of healthcare and medicine at the time of... Yeah, or lack thereof. Yeah. Since the beginning of time, civilizations have used premature burial as a form of punishment. In the London Bridges episode, like I said, we talked about immurement being buried in a wall, and we said later on we're going to elaborate on it, so here we are. In ancient Rome... The Vestal Virgins, who broke their vow of celibacy, were immured into small caves. I could think of worse things to be immured in. Like a, just a <laughs> small box, but if it was a pretty large cave, you, I guess you could starve in peace. I don't know. In Germany, live burial was reserved for women who committed infanticide. I don't know about the men. Uh, in medieval Italy, murderers who uh, were buried alive, but they were buried alive head first with their feet sticking above the ground. Mm-hmm. That's the worst way. That's that like, has got to be the worst headache of all time. Lovely reminder to anybody passing by. Yeah. Just see some feet people. sticking outside the ground. And these are all obviously horrible ways to die. But there's something even creepier about accidental premature burial. And this fear really ramped up in the late 18th and early 19th century. And this is in large part due to rising literacy rates. And of course, there was the patenting of the printing press in 1810, which revolutionized the newspaper and the book industry. And it also popularized macabre stories of premature burial. So for example, one of my favorites, Edgar Allan Poe, big death guy. He seemed to capitalize on this phobia. And three of his greatest short stories, which are The Premature Burial, the fall of the House of Usher, and the cask of Amontillado all center on premature burials and are partly responsible for fueling the flames of this phobia. So, Explains a lot. Right. One such account relates... Oh, wait, sorry. Excuse me. Cut that. I got to scroll down. <laughs> That's where I needed to cut it. Do, do, do. Okay. Before advances in science, the Victorians created very interesting, sometimes gruesome ways to test for death. In the hospital these days, they check for uh, the eyes. They obviously check the heart monitor. There's, there's a series of tests that they do to ensure that one is dead. But back then, they didn't have the science to do those things, so they had some interesting techniques, we will say. Can't wait. Yeah. The first one would be smoke enemas. <laughs> wait, yeah. What? Yeah. So tobacco smoke enemas became a mainstream practice in the 1700s, and they didn't just use it to treat death. They also used it to treat common ailments such as headaches, respiratory illnesses, but specifically the resuscitation of drowning victims. And the practice was thought to work by warming the person's body. Tobacco smoke is warm, obviously, and the stimulated respiration. 
And a guy named Richard Mead was the first known Westerner to suggest tobacco smoke enemas as an effective treatment for resuscitation in 1745. Here's what you got to think about, though. It's like there was the first person that said, hey, let's try this. I'm just like, okay, tobacco smoke, but why? Like, why did you settle on tobacco smoke? Why not other things? Like a good old licorice, like licorice. Why not just stick some licorice up the butthole? Why wouldn't that work? You know? So smoke enemas used in resuscitation became such a common practice that enema kits, okay, enema kits were found alongside the waterways, which is very similar to how AEDs, you know, defibrillators can be found in amusement parks, grocery stores, everywhere these days. But they didn't have that, no, they had enema kits. And by 1774, Drs. William Halls and Thomas Cogan, who were the founders of the Institution for Affording Immediate Relief to Persons Apparently Dead from Drowning, we, we love Apparently dead. a long title name, yeah. They have published a rhyme to help the public successfully perform the procedure. You kind of like how today the the idea with CPR is <clears throat> staying alive. Yep. You know, they have that whole uh, 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 mm-hmm, uh. to keep you in beat. Well, they just had this rhyme, and it went, Tobacco glister, breathe and, ble- breathe and bleed, keep warm and rub till you succeed, and spare no pains for what you do may one day be repaid to you. To me, there's not, like, an ex- instructional piece there. No. There's not, like, a take off this end and stick it up the rectum, and all day you'll have what rhymes with rectum. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of a single word that rhymes with You know with what rectum. I mean? It's not instructional. No, it's more high-level uh, right. philosophy. <laughs> so these kits consisted of, I'm going to come up with that. I'm just going to wake up in the middle Hold of my on. sleep. Nothing rhymes with rectum. Yeah, but like... Spectrum, sort of? Okay, on the rectum, get it all up in my spectrum, like something like that. Okay. Yeah. So these kits consisted of a tube, a fumigator, and bellows. And the tube connected to the fumigator and bellows, while the other end of the tube was inserted into the victim. And then compressed smoke was forced into the rectum. However, not everybody has these bellows and tubes and fumigators laying around. So when uh, worse comes to worse, there are people who who cut corners here. Uh, One documented case in 1746 came from the resuscitation of a man's wife who was revived by using a tobacco pipe. The stem was shoved into the wife's rectum while he covered the other end of the pipe with his mouth and blew. I assume it worked the same way uh, for the victim, but what this person would have faced was a face full or a mouthful of fecal matter. Yeah, I was about to say, hope he didn't inhale. Yeah, (laughs) and this just further exacerbated the health concerns of the time period. So, there you go. That was smoke enemas. One way, hey, if you're in a pickle, in the rectum, in the spectrum, get it done. (laughs) The next method would be involve the tongue. And manipulating the tongue, either by force or by taste, became an interesting method of reviving the unconscious. They would forcibly pull or pinch a tongue, and another popular choice was to drop various sour, bitter, or alcoholic liquids on the tongue, such as vinegar, lemon, or brandy. Perhaps one of the more tedious methods of ensuring the dead were actually dead was something known as tongue cranking. 
Ever heard of it? No. Dr. J. V. Laborde hypothesized that manipulating sensitive body parts could lead to the revival of those thought dead. I see where this is going. Yeah. His hypothesis stemmed from a personal success of reviving a woman thought dead by rhythmically yanking her tongue for three hours with forceps. But I just but wonder I, what kept him going. Like, on, you're on hour one, hour one, 30 minutes. You're yanking on somebody's tongue. Also, how did the tongue not get ripped out? And there's like 10 other people in the room. They're like, hey, man, hey, you're going to I think we're good here. I think she's dead. Tongue. Yep. This woman apparently did, was revived, whether she was dead or not. And she later complained of the agonizing pain the tongue yanking induced. So I guess he got tired. His arms got tired. So he, this man, the Laborde guy, eventually engineered a tongue-pulling machine, which was specifically made for mortuaries. And it was said even untrained mortuary assistants were capable of determining if the person were truly dead and ready for burial by using this machine. Just a tongue-yanking yanking machine. So that's, there's that. You could, so, so far, you could either get smoke blown up your butt or your tongue yanked on or cranked on. Sounds sophisticated. Then there is galvanism. Similar to Calvinism. Yes, not at all. Five but, points. Yeah. Okay. The inspiration for Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is said to have originated from the cutting-edge science of its day, galvanism. Um, now, galvanism is named after scientist Luigi Galvani, who declared electricity to be the force that brought life to all. I can see where he's going with that. That's a good thought. He was an anatomy. Validity. Yeah. Yeah. He was an anatomy professor, and he was performing his own Frankenstein experiments on frogs, also green, if it's the the, uh, storyline. He discovered that applying electricity to the frog's body caused its muscles to twitch. And despite its foolproof and entertaining reputation, galvanism death test did not become popularized. And that's just simply because the machinery to conduct such tests was very expensive. So... Why would you build all these machines when you can just blow smoke up somebody's butt or pull on their tongue? Next would be not necessarily shocking the body with electricity, but shocking the body with pain. So one such test involved holding the supposedly deceased finger over a candle flame. The warmth from the candle would supposedly produce a pulsation, indicating the heart was still beating. They, they do ramp up the pain um, on these other tests. Uh, other ones included just, you know, chopping off a finger or toe. It was said that the shock from removing such a sensitive part would instantly awaken anyone who is apparently but not genuinely dead. Yeah. So slicing off fingers was not only hypothesized method of shocking one back to life. There was also scalding water. They would they would pour scalding hot water over people's bodies and hope in the hope that they would wake up. My my idea is or my thought there is you pour scalding water now they're alive but they have four degree burns all over their body and did they have antibiotics back then the infection's going to be horrible so they're doing more harm than good yeah i feel like you're either you're either mutilating a corpse Mm -hmm. or you are just destroying somebody who's a deep sleeper right or had a concussion i would rather be dead than some of these yeah yeah so there was an englishman named barnett who came up with a more thorough method, he thought. So he advocated burning a patch of skin on the corpse's arm, and if it blistered, the person was still alive and therefore not fit to be buried. 
Similarly, doctors would even recommend burning the corpse's nose to shock the body back to consciousness. And to that, I say, why not shock like their butt cheek or something people aren't going to see? Yep. Why go for the nose? Nevertheless, uh, the next method, I never heard of this before. It's called a needle flag. So eventually it was discovered that a beating heart or lack thereof could differentiate between life and death. But I guess back then they weren't as trained to listen for a beating heart. So there was a German scientist who engineered this needle flag test. And the test involved thrusting a needle into the chest. And the needle was attached to a small fabric flag that was said to wave if the person's heart was still beating. Like if the wind's blowing in your chest? Yeah. Now, I have watched eyes get harvested before. And they also need a good sample. What I'm trying to say is I've seen a very large needle go straight into someone's chest and it immediately fills with blood from the heart and it's pretty cool so same idea there the only problem is if the person's not uh, yeah if the person's not dead and they're just in a coma then you just ruptured a part of their heart so that test does the math does not check out there for me yeah a lot of trial and error then this one seems to make the most sense to me if you didn't have science and what we have now that is waiting mortuaries the initial definition of the word morgue comes from the French word morger or, quote, to stare. By the late 1800s, the Parisian morgues became public spectacles, and they were essentially going to the morgue was the same as us nowadays getting a bucket of popcorn and going to the movies. We could do an entire episode on Parisian morgues. They're fascinating. But people would flock by the thousands just to see the unidentified bodies laying on slabs behind large glass windows, while those waiting to catch a glimpse could also purchase an array of goodies such as toys and pastries from vendors who were capitalizing on this morbid curiosity. It's kind of similar to the, the attraction of the gallows. Yeah. Like it was like, a, hey, right. what are you doing Friday night? Well, I'm going to watch Jim get hanged. Uh-huh. Honestly, they don't have anything else to do. Yeah. So, I, I mean, to be honest, I would be there with that. I would like to see that. It was that or churning butter. Yeah. Or, right. You know. <laughs> Late 19th century Germany was possibly the best place for one to perish. I mean, if you got to go, if you had to pick, you pick. You should pick Germany. The waiting mortuaries there were located in Munich, and they were known as, I'm going to butcher this, the Munich Leichenhaus. 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 I don't know. These establishments allowed corpses to lie on these zinc trays until they decomposed. And the zinc trays were actually filled with an antiseptic to reduce the chance of infection or delay putrefaction. And the areas around the trays were decorated with fragrant fragrant flowers to disguise the inevitable smell of death. Let me just tell you, working in a hospital, not just death, but like C. diff, GI bleed, there is no flower. Mud butt. butt, Yep, exactly. There are no amount of flowers or coffee grinds, because we like to put coffee grinds in rooms that, that hide that smell. But it's a great thought. And this is likely, or people, some people think that this is where the custom of decorative flowers at funeral services originated. So just a fun fact there. And often the mortuaries were divided by class. So the richest families had their own section, and the, the poorer families were in a different section. Morgues were also staffed uh, with 24 hours a day attentive caretakers and the corpses were and we'll talk more about this in detail later were rigged with uh, these crafted bell systems that would alert the staff of a corpse's reawakening 
and those are also known as safety coffins and we're going to get to that in a minute so just keep that in mind i just wonder how many times the bell actually rang probably a lot not based off someone coming back alive but just by body changes and stuff Mm -hmm. we'll talk we're gonna don't you worry we're gonna get to it this next method is very dwight schrute because doesn't he pee on paper with invisible ink to decode a message he does I can't remember that. I'm ashamed. Okay, well, they also used invisible ink. The interesting history of invisible ink can be dated back over 2,000 years ago, starting with, as always, the ancient Greeks and Romans. The first known record comes from Pliny the Elder in his book, Natural History, and he used the milk of the Tithymalis plant to create invisible ink. The Revolutionary War... Uh, saw an increase in the use of invisible inks on both the British and American side. So writing on the coattails of the war's many successful invisible ink concoctions came the very clever idea to use the ink as a way of indicating whether the presumed dead were truly dead. So during this Revolutionary War, you obviously had a lot of soldiers who had passed, so they needed a tried-and-true method to ensure that they had passed. So they would use acetate or lead to create an ink, And then they would use that ink to write the phrase, I am really dead on a piece of paper. That paper was then placed under the corpse's nose. And the idea there is that the body, when it's in decomp, releases sulfur oxide. And the sulfur oxide would supposedly activate the ink. And if I am really dead appeared on the paper, the corpse was officially decided dead. The problem with this was false positives were an occasional problem because dentistry back then did not exist so common things like tooth decay and tonsillitis would also cause the emission of sulfur oxide leading the infamous ink to test positively for one's death so these unreliable methods are what led to its demise stanky breath that's why we don't continue to use right which everyone back then i would imagine had a little bit stank breath so then like i was saying there are the safety coffins the general fear of premature burial led to the invention of many safety devices which could be incorporated into coffins most of them consisted of some type of device for communication to the outside world such as a cord attached to a bell that the interred person could ring should they revive after the burial the first recorded safety coffin was constructed on the orders of duke ferdinand of brunswick before his death in 1792 so he ha- actually had a window installed into his coffin to allow light in and an air tube to provide a supply of fresh air. And instead of having the lid to his coffin nailed shut, he had a lock put on it. And in a special pocket on his shroud, he had two keys, one that opened the coffin lid and another that opened the tomb door. I'm just thinking if you're almost, if you're dead enough to be put in the ground, your fine motor control is not going to be that great to be reaching in a pocket, getting a, a lock right what if you drop it there's no light in there well he had the light from the lid door but but this was obviously a big enough problem Mm -hmm. to where they were like hey we need to come up with yeah some little concept Mm -hmm. that lets those people that aren't dead right let us know right so then there was pg pessler who was a german priest and he suggested in 1798 that all coffins have a tube inserted from which a cord would run to the church bells And if an individual had been buried alive, they could draw attention to themselves by ringing the bells. 
And this idea, obviously highly impractical, but led to the first designs of safety coffins equipped with signaling systems. Pessler's colleague, Pastor Beck, suggested that coffins should have a small trumpet-like tube attached. And this is not for blowing on the trumpet. This is because they, they stated that each day the local priest should check the state of putrefaction of the corpse by sniffing the odor emanating from the tube. That's a good job. Yeah. Yeah, God. If no odor was detected or the priest heard cries for, the, for help, the person would be dug up and the occupant rescued. Can you just imagine just going around and sniffing a bunch of decay? That Not was your job? the best job. Now, now you could just bury people with their iPhone in their pocket. Mm-hmm. Like, right. Hey, shoot me a text if you're down there. Yeah. yeah. Get them a couple battery packs just yeah. in case. <laughs> so then there were people who capitalized on this as a, a business plan. One of those people, Dr. Adolf Gutsmuth, what a name. He was buried alive several times to demonstrate a safety coffin of his own design. And in 1822, he stayed underground for several hours and even ate a meal while he was down there. He had some soup, bratwurst, marzipan, sauerkraut, spotzel, beer, and dessert, all delivered to him through the coffin's feeding tube. Very German. Yep. The 1820s also saw the use of portable death chambers in Germany. A small chamber which was equipped with a bell for signaling and a window for viewing the body, was constructed over an empty grave. Then, watchmen would be hired to check each day for signs of life or decomp in each of the chambers. And if the bell was rung, the body could be immediately removed. But if the watchman noticed any signs of decay, a door in the floor of the chamber could be opened and the body would just drop into the grave. And then a panel could be slid and to cover the grave and then the upper chamber removed and reused for the next dead person so that efficient yeah although several designs were built and sold there is no indication that any dead person was ever buried in a safety coffin most models had sufficient design flaws to suggest that they would have been unlikely to have worked properly if they had actually been used For example, the models that required ropes to be tied directly to the arms and legs of the person so that they could ring the bell, that's problematic because when the body is going through decomposition, the body bloats, there's air that's released that can move the body and then set off a false alarm. Safety coffins are still available today. As recently as 1995, an Italian man named Fabrizio Caselli invented a model that includes an emergency alarm a two-way microphone slash speaker, a torch, which, why are we going back to, like, the medieval periods? Like, we were doing good then, and then we came with it's came like, in hot with a, a torch. It's like, don't worry about LEDs. Yeah. Let's get a torch. Mm-hmm. It also had an oxygen tank, a heartbeat sensor, and a heart stimulator. Okay? So, with the rich history of safety coffins, it's no wonder that several expressions have remained firmly implanted in today's language, so... We got a couple here. You might have heard of them. You ever heard of a dead ringer? Mm-mm. You've never heard somebody use the phrase, that's a dead ringer? Like a for sure thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, okay. it's a phrase that is used to signify anything that's an exact duplicate. Dead, the dead people, they're ringing the bells, dead ringer. See what I mean? Yep. Another one, this one's more interesting to me. It, it honestly, it had a whole TV show named after it, would be the phrase, saved by the bell. No way. Yeah. Isn't that nice? Um, so now I thought I would, I, I've told you about the methods in which we determine if someone is dead or not back then. 
But then I want to tell you the actual stories we have from history of people actually being buried alive because it did indeed happen. So buckle up. In Mexico, there was a great cholera pandemic in 1833 and cholera, it it was spread so quickly that they had to bury their dead quickly and they buried them in above ground mausoleums. And you can see that if they're burying people quickly, the probability that someone's buried alive is higher. 20 years later, the local government disinterred some of the bodies and discovered they'd been naturally mummified. But the story of one mummy named Ignacia, uh, she did not meet a great fate. So they found her. They found her hands balled together above her heart. Her left elbow was pointing downwards, and at first glance, her head appeared to be resting on her elevated right arm, like she was taking a little nap. But upon closer inspection, Ignacia's teeth were dug into her forearm. Fingernail scratches run jagged in all directions across her forehead, and what little of her mouth is visible beneath the right arm was caked with dried blood. Her body was also discovered face down in its coffin, and there was no doubt that this Ignacia woman was buried alive. I have recently, and by recently in the last 30 minutes, decided I'm getting cremated. Right. Yep. Yep. One, so let's take it to, to America because these things did happen in where in our uh, not necessarily in our hometown, but home country, mother the motherland. One such account relates to a famous, very prominent woman for, from Virginia, Anne Hill Carter Lee. She was born into one of America's wealthiest families of the era, and she was an exemplary woman of her time. But she did have poor health, which led to an occurrence that causes skepticism and debate among historians even to this day. So after a period of falling ill, Anne Hill Carter Lee was pronounced dead after the doctor repeatedly failed to detect a heartbeat or any sign of life. And her death came as a crushing loss to her family, and she was laid to rest in her family's vault. Because if you're rich back then, you just got a whole dang vault. But soon after the funeral, a man was visiting the vault, and to his utter shock, he heard muffled screams from inside. And on further inspection, it revealed that Anne Hill Carter Lee was far, far from dead. She was actually exhumed in perfect health. And the event shook the wealthy Lee family and remained a controversial topic for many generations to come. But nonetheless, Anne Lee survived, and 13 months after her untimely funeral, she gave birth to a guy, you might have heard of him, Robert E. Lee. No way. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. In 1915, there was a 30-year-old South Carolinian, Carolinian, yeah, I guess. Carolinian? Carolinian, yeah. She is from South Carolina, and her name was Essie Dunbar, and she suffered a fatal attack of epilepsy. Because there's the thing, there's certain illnesses like locked-in syndrome, epilepsy, where you could be out, you're in a coma, things like that, that it would lead to this. And I feel like if I had one of those disorders or diseases, I would be like, listen. Don't bury me. Don't bury me. Leave me But anyway, she had epilepsy, and she had a fatal attack, or so everyone thought. And after declaring her dead, doctors placed her body in a coffin and scheduled her funeral for the next day so that her sister, who was out of town, would still be able to get there in time and pay her respects. But for whatever reason, 
Her sister didn't get there fast enough, and she arrived only to see the last clumps of dirt thrown on top of the coffin. This didn't sit well with her, and she wanted to see her sister Essie one last time. So she ordered that the body be removed, and when the coffin lid was open, Essie sat up, smiled at all around her, and she lived for another 47 years. I would not be smiling if that happened to me. Would not be smiling. So this next case, very recent, not very recent, but recent compared to all the other ones. And this, I want you to listen to this, okay? This, this story involves something you enjoy doing. Lacey this is, is tapping my foot vigorously. Yes. 19-year-old <laughs> um, Frenchman, Angelo Hayes. In 1937, Hayes wrecked his motorcycle. Mm. His motorcycle, Chase. Yes, I have one. With the impact throwing him off and head first into a brick wall. I'm not doing that. Yeah. His face was so disfigured that his parents weren't allowed to view the body. And after locating no pulse, the doctors declared Hayes dead. And three days later, which that's a good amount of time, I'll give it to him, Hayes was buried. But because of an investigation from the local insurance company, his body was exhumed two days after the funeral. And much to everyone's surprise at the Forensic Institute, when they opened his casket, Hayes' body was still warm. He had been in a deep coma, and his body's diminished need for oxygen had actually kept him alive. And after numerous surgeries and some rehab, he recovered completely. In fact, he became a French celebrity, and people traveled from afar to speak with him. And in the 1970s, he went on tour with a very souped-up... See, he capitalized on this moment. He came up with his own safety coffin. And his safety coffin had thick upholstery, a food locker, a toilet, and even a library. <laughs> so if you wake up and you're not dead mm-hmm. and you got to poop... Yeah, you we can get, do it. You, you might still be dead because nobody's coming to get you, but you got a toilet. At least I cannot poop my pants. At least I can sit on the toilet with a good old Harry Potter book. And, yeah. yeah. Well, the other thing that's interesting is I wonder why the insurance company was suspicious of his death. Because right. having worked in insurance, there's a... Conte- Maybe the there was like a recall on his motorcycle? Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's a contestability period. So, like, if I got insurance today for two years, mm-hmm. if I were to kill myself or something suspicious happened, they would investigate. Yeah. So, I'm guessing it probably happened within a short period of time of when mm-hmm. he got the insurance. Yeah, it could be. They thought he ran head on first into yeah. the wall on purpose. Might have been a suit. Yeah. Suicide, yeah. maybe. So, what can be gleaned from this next very unfortunate case comes from a newspaper excuse me, newspaper article dating back to 1884. It was called the Kentucky's Hickman Courier. It was reported that a young lady by the name of Anna Hawkwalt was dressing for her brother's wedding and sat down to rest in the kitchen. When someone checked in on her a few minutes later, she was still there. Her head was leaning against the wall, but she was apparently lifeless. Medical aid arrived and the doctor assumed she was dead when they couldn't revive her. And it was thought that Anna's generally nervous nature and the fact that she suffered from heart palpitations was the cause of death. So I'd be screwed. You're just like a nervous person and you, you conk out for a couple Everyone seconds and they're like, flutter. yeah, she did. But this assumption did not sit well with some of Anna's friends who thought that during her funeral, her ears looked a little pink as though blood was flowing through them. But nevertheless, Anna was buried the next day, but her friends told her parents of their observation. And of course, they were, just being a parent, they couldn't sleep at night, and they 
ordered for her body to be dug back up. But what they found was the worst case scenario. Nobody was sitting up smiling. Uh, Anna's body was turned onto its side. Her fingers gnawed almost all the way to the bone and a hair torn out by the handful. Her hands were full of her own hair. Yeah. Uh, Last person here. Octavia Smith Hatcher. She lived in Pikeville, Kentucky. And after her son died in 1891, she was stricken with grief. She was bedridden. She was pretty much catatonic, which I guess they didn't know about catatonia then, but you can just look like you're not there. On May 2nd, she was pronounced dead from unknown causes. And embalming wasn't an option back then, and it was a very hot summer in Kentucky. So they buried Octavia quickly. However, suddenly many other townspeople appeared to be struck with a similar sickness that caused them to fall into a coma. But Octavia's husband noticed these people are going into comas and coming back out of it alive. So he thought, oh, he began to fear the worst and he exhumed his wife's coffin only to discover that his fears were true. The lining of the coffin had been scratched and torn to pieces and the glass on top of it was smashed and scattered over Octavia's body. Her nails were bloodied and broken and her face was twisted with terror. Octavia was reburied and James erected a lifelike monument over her grave, which still stands today. And he reportedly developed a severe phobia of being buried alive, which to that I say, yes. Duh. Mm -hmm. And now that I have read all of these to you, I too, I I would think twice about being Mm -hmm. buried versus cremated. Yep. That's the thing about cremation though. Like if you're scared about being buried alive you should be scared about being burned because <laughs> you're not if actually dead then yeah. getting burned alive well the thing about burning alive is after it like quickly burns through the first two layers the the um, epidermis and the, the other layers don't have like sensory so yeah. then you're just burning and you can't actually feel it not to say that i want to be burned alive but sure but i, I also think like uh, the incinerators that a crematorium would use would be pretty quick in terms right. of right they get pretty hot it's not like, hey, light the, light the bonfire. Go out in the back and get some. It's like, boom, two yeah. thousand degrees. Right. Either way, what is your, what is the scariest way to die to you? You got burning, drowning. <clears throat> I would not want to drown. I feel like that would suck. Even though it'd be over quickly. Bur- I would rather drown than is- no. I would rather burn than drown. Really? Yeah, because like I said, it goes like that. Drowning. Uh, well, I mean, if somebody dropped me on the surface of the sun, I'd rather burn to death because yeah, it'd be instantaneous. Yeah, yeah. But if somebody was like, hey, got you in the backyard, we're putting up some firewood, I think I'd rather drown because you go unconscious and then it's over. Yeah. I think like, some form of torture would be the worst way to die. Like a pro- I honestly think being buried alive like a Ryan Riddle situation would be, would be horrible. You would just starve to death or die of Yeah, but that would be slowly. And if you're to any little bit claustrophobic that's a horrible way to go yeah i yeah. don't know the the brick wall on the motorcycle might be the best way right but honestly Except it didn't kill didn't. him yeah that's you that's not a foolproof method mm. anyway chase i hope you enjoyed listening to all the ways that you can check for death and all the the ways people have been buried alive mm. maybe invest in a safety coffin if that'd make you feel better 
I feel like safety coffin, coffins, coff, mm-hmm. not coffins, mm-hmm. uh, would be super simple now that we have PVC pipe. It's like, hey, just run a pipe down there. Yeah. You got oxygen. We can drop a string with a bell. Mm-hmm. If you wake up, ring the bell, get some oxygen. Right. But the dead people that I see on a daily basis, there's, I guess, th- yeah, there's no question that they're dead. Right. The skin immediately changes colors. Yeah. You also have heartbeat monitors yeah 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 etc i'm just saying by general look though like it's very obvious when someone's dead but i did when i was watching that guy's eyes get harvested that one time i did think if he wasn't dead (laughs) that right there is the worst way to go yeah they made sure yeah they made sure what does theodore think because he's been hey theodore what what? appears to be dead this entire time we've been recording let me see you're good no thoughts no thoughts in his mind but you were a good boy you were a good boy and you sat there didn't you okay no he has no thoughts well thank you chase for joining us this week happy to do it we're starting off spooky season the right way because it's officially fall and and we've put all of our halloween decorations up we did that the first day of september september 25th we already did that chase said could you please wait to put the outside decorations up and i gave him like a week and then i did it anyway so here we are Anyway, we'll uh, catch you next time. Follow us on Instagram at Scary Tales Podcast. And, uh. Oh, wait, he's gonna do it. I didn't even have to cue him. Bye bye. Oh, good. <gasps> you gotta do the huge gasp before him. Bye bye. Bye bye.